Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. There are those that fight for food and run for water, whose hunger is deeper than anger, who know thirst in every cell, in fingertips and the back of the throat. Their dry tears cry out from the ground like the righteousness of Abel's blood. Their longing reaches out like empty nets casting in the seas. The rains come swelling the valleys. The nets stretch and fill with life. The hungry feast, the thirsty swim. Good morning, everyone. Um, this morning, we'll be continuing our series on the Beatitudes entitled Blessings, Promises of the Kingdom. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, in hopes of helping us to hold on to these Beatitudes, not as individuals, but as a whole, we'll be reading um, all of the Beatitudes this morning, Matthew 5, 1 to 12. Again, this is a picture of what life looks like in the kingdom. It is meant to be read, obviously, one verse at a time, but taken together. Um, but also to remember that these are Jesus' promises that he's taken from his father in the Old Testament. These are the same promises the father has made that Jesus is now remaking. Uh, but more than that, you know, the challenge for us this morning is when we read these Beatitudes to not only not only deal with them individually but collectively, but to not divorce them from the Sermon on the Mount. They all fit together. But more than that even, if this is Jesus' teaching, that means we must come to it with a posture of we're here to learn. And that if this is Jesus' call, we must come with a posture and a commitment to, to actually listen. And lastly, we know that Jesus is the way to salvation, but in these Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is calling us to a way of life. Let's read. Um, I'll be reading Matthew 5, 1 to 12. Starting at verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and, began, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. When people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray together. Father God, help us to hunger and thirst for your righteousness. We thank you that you are indeed good, that you're faithful, that you're true, that you're mercy, that you're compassion, that you're love. Lord, righteous one, we thank you that we can see your righteousness in what you've done, in what you're doing, and in what you will do. God, help us this morning to hunger after your righteousness and to join you in the Spirit in bringing your righteousness so that your will can be done on earth as it is in heaven. In your holy and precious name, amen. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. One of the challenges with this beatitude is that we think we get it. We know hunger. 
There's some of you right now who are looking at your watch and be like, man, this church goes till 1230. That's going to mess up my lunch. I'm hungry. We think we know thirst. There's some of you right now, you know, I carry a water bottle. In, in my house, water solves everything. You know, my wife, you know, is like, I have a headache. Do you drink enough water? No. I'm hungry. Drink some water. Huh, it's not as tasty. I think I know thirst, and we think we know thirst. However, for us to truly understand this beatitude, we have to go back to the mount. We have to go back to the mountain and understand how the people in Jesus' day would have understood. And that helps us unpack what Jesus really meant. Jesus isn't saying blessed are the hungry. Jesus isn't saying blessed are the thirsty. He talks about hunger and he talks about thirst. This is very, very important because his people back then, for example, the privileged, the ones who had jobs who were working, they would eat meat once a week. Right? Now, as a Liberian, as a West African, that's painful to me. You know, I remember when my wife and I were dating, God bless her, um, she, she made a meal. Apparently it was a meal, right? Uh, she's not here, so I can talk more trash this service. Um, <laughs> like, so we had like salad and, and soup and bread, and she was all excited. She laid it all out, and I walk in, and I was just like, but like, where's the meat? You know, in my culture, we eat meat every meal. You know, we even have meat snacks, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You know, and so for her, it was just like, yeah, here's the, the meal. And I was just like, seriously, like, where's the meat? But in that culture, people who had jobs, we eat meat once a week. So when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger, this is the people who knew known something about that. You know, William Barclay says the hunger that Jesus is talking about here is starvation. The thirst that Jesus is talking about isn't just I'm thirsty, let me grab a, a drink of water. It's thirst to the point of death, where you're so parts that you're about to die. The hunger is not being hungry, having a lack of food or this strong desire to eat. Have you been hungry? Yes. But do you know hunger? Do you know starvation? Do you know starvation is such a severe and total lack of nutrients that you can't even have energy to live? Do you know starvation that leads to shrinkage of your vital organs, chronic diarrhea, anemia, reduction of muscle mass, consequent weakness, exaggerated swelling, even hallucinations, starvation that leads to death if you stay that way for 8 to 12 weeks? This is the hunger Jesus is speaking about. Not are you hungry for righteousness. Do you know hunger that's on the precipice of death and thirst? The thirst that Jesus is talking about is not thirsty. It's not about wanting or needing a drink. Do you know thirst? You know, um, if you want to learn something, go to our Urban Dictionary. You might learn a little too much. The younger generation use thirst in a very biblical way, actually. You know, they might not think so, but it's biblical because all wisdom comes from God, right? The younger generation, when they say that's thirsty or you're very thirsty, they mean an overeagerness. They mean uh, a, a desperation, and that's the kind of over-eagerness and desperation that Jesus is actually talking about when he talks about hunger and thirst. So next time a young person says he's thirsty, now you know. But what is he talking about with this thirst, though? It's not just over-eagerness or desperateness. You know, even in our world today, people have a lack of access to clean water. According to World Health Organization, 35% of the world's population, that's 2.5 billion people, don't have an improved water source. 
An improved water source is generally water that's supplied through a household connection, a public standpipe, a borehole well, a protected dug well, a protected spring, or rainwater collection. So any kind of water that they can even, they give all those definitions that they define as clean water, 35% of the population right now doesn't have access to it. That's 2.5 billion people. You think they know thirst? You think they can understand the desperation, the over-eagerness for water that Jesus is talking about? Because here's the thing. Of that 2.5 billion people, every single year, 801,000 children under five die for lack of access to clean water. If you're doing the math, that's about 2,200 people a day, five and under, dying for lack of access to clean water because of disease, because of malnutrition. Do you think they might understand a little bit better when Jesus says hunger and thirst? Do you think they understand thirst this morning? Maybe a little bit deeper than we understood coming into this passage. It's an over-eagerness and a desperation to quench their thirst. This is the blessing that Jesus is giving. This is the kind of hunger that he wants for his righteousness. Not just someone who says, ah, I can have a bite to eat and I'm good. I can turn on the spigot and I have water. But that desperation, that over-eagerness for clean water, that over-eagerness for the next bite to eat because you don't know when it's coming again. That's the kind of over-eagerness that Jesus wants you to have for God's goodness, for God's work, for God's kingdom, and over-eagerness to do good. So the first question for us this morning is, do you have a desperation to do what's right in God's eyes? Because we need not only this hunger and thirst for righteousness, we need it for God's will to be done. Because here's the truth. We live in a world that's dying, and God has left his spirit, and he's left you the church. We live in a world that's broken, but God's left the spirit, and he's left you the church. We live in a world that's in darkness, but God's left the spirit, and he's left you the church. Are you willing to hunger and thirst to do God's will, to do what's right in God's eyes? Because righteousness, Pastor Ephraim Smith reminds us, is God's justice and virtue put together. Righteousness is who God is. One of the joys of our God, when you look at him, is that he's good. When you look at your life, you can remember he's true. He's faithful. He's love. He's mercy. He's compassion. Righteousness is who God is. It's his character. It's his attributes. It's he who is good. He who is excellent. But you know, God's righteousness is also be seen in what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do. You know what God's done? We in the church like to call that redemption. What God's doing, we in the church like to call that reconciliation. And what God will do, the future hope of the world, we in the church like to call that restoration. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the work that God has done. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the work that God is doing. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the work that God will do. Do you want God's goodness by those definitions? Are you on the brink of starvation when you look at this world that's so broken? Are you desperate to help make it whole again through Jesus Christ? When you look at this world that's so dark, are you desperate to partner with the Spirit to shine your light? When you look at this world that is everything that is not as supposed to be, are you desperate and over-eager to partner with God, to partner with the church, to partner with the Spirit, to say, Jesus is alive. 
Jesus is here. Now let's get to work. You know, the hunger and thirst for God's righteousness comes with a complete understanding that God is good. And I love Bible characters. One reason I love Bible characters is because they're not perfect, so it helps me breathe easy. But the other reason I love Bible characters is because they point me to God. And when I was was thinking about God's righteousness, as I was thinking about the fact that God is good, I remember Joshua. You remember Joshua? He had a little bit of a desperate situation, didn't he? Joshua is supposed to follow Moses, the man of God, God's friend, the one God gave the law to. Moses was supposed to lead him in the promised land, but now he's not. And now Moses is dead and he's desperate and Israel is desperate. Where would we go? Moses was God's friend. What will we do? And God comes to Joshua in the middle of this desperate situation. You know what God says? Trust me for I am good for I am righteous. I know this seems desperate, but you need to be strong and be courageous for I am with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Trust me for I am God and trust in scripture for it will lead you and teach you how to live to please me. This morning in this room, some of us need to just get back to think of righteousness as simply trusting that God is good. Some of us right now in this room need to be like Joshua because the world looks desperate around us. Our world looks desperate. Our situation looks desperate. But you need to just hear what God said to Joshua because he's saying it to you. Trust me for I am good. Trust me and be strong and courageous for I will never leave you or forsake you. Trust me and trust my word because my word, the scriptures will teach you how to live to please me. Trust me, God says. Or what about Rahab? And I love Rahab. And what I love Rahab is is how much we forget about her faith. Most people can tell you Rahab was a harlot and a prostitute, but how many people tell you she's in the line of Jesus? Most people can tell you all the things that they think Rahab did, but how many can tell you about how brave she was? How much she trusted that God was going to redeem her? Think about Rahab's situation. Think about desperate situation. Joshua is now in power. I'll see, I'll take that back. God's the real hero of the story. God is in power and he's working through Joshua and Israel is just mowing down enemies. I'm a pacifist, but this is like the closest we get to violence. God is just mowing down enemies. He's mowing them all down, right? And and Jericho's in the way with its big, big wall. Rahab is not just a woman. She's a harlot. She's a prostitute. She, she, she then sees and hears about what God has done, right? God's righteous work. He's sure what God's done. And she takes these spies and she hides them in her house. Now, now theologians do backflips over this, right? They're like, well, I mean, you know, so, so sometimes back then, you know, like, like the, the, the place was also an inn. It wasn't just like a prostitution house. It was also an inn. So people stay there. I don't know if that's true or not. I wasn't there, Right. But all I know is the spies came and they hid in Rahab's house. And that's my grandmom. She would not buy that story, but that's just me. But they're in her house. And here's what I forget about the story. The king of Jericho comes to Rahab. And he says, you know, I know you're hiding those spies. And she stands up to him and she protects them. How many people know more about Rahab being a harlot than the fact that she looked the king in the eye and trusted the God of Israel who she didn't yet know personally? Rahab trusted God's redemption because she trusted the work that God had done. And not only did she trust it, she comes to the spies and she says, 
Remember me and my family. Save me and my family. This God of Israel obviously likes you guys. I want to join your team. And what a blessing to us that God doesn't hold what we've done against us. That's not what keeps us out of the kingdom. What a blessing to us because if you're in this room and you don't have 100% Jewish heritage, you're here because of Rahab. You're here because she was an outsider and God made her a full member. You're here because she didn't belong to the crew, but God said, welcome home, my daughter. You're here because she trusted that the God of Israel, that the God of this universe, she trusted that he was righteous and good. And she looked the king of Jericho in the eye and says, I'm not going to trust in power I see. I'm going to trust in this God I want to know. And some of us need to be Rahab this morning. Some of us need to be Rahab where we're willing to say, God, I trust in what you've done for me. God, I trust in what you've done on Calvary's cross. God, I trust your resume. One of the things I think the New Testament writers miss, and you get to say that because whatever, don't argue with me in heaven and we'll celebrate Jesus, it's fine. But one of the things I think the New Testament writers miss is they don't, they don't introduce God as well as the Old Testament guys. The Old Testament writers, when they introduce God, they give a full resume, right? Like God wants you to know who he is, right? I am God, the Lord of hosts. In the New Testament, we get Jesus. In the Old Testament, I'm the God who rescued you from Egypt. I'm the God who saved you from your sin. I'm the God who gave you manna in the desert. I'm the God who'll never leave you or forsake you. We need to be like Rahab and trust God's redemption, that the work that God has done is because he's good. But also, we need to trust that God's working right now. So many of us have majors and PhDs in telling about how this world is broken. So many of us are really good about telling how the world is not as it should be. So many of us can tell you about the darkness in this world, the brokenness of this world. But here's the thing. God knows the world is dark, but he calls you his light. God knows the world is broken, but he expects you to help heal it. God knows this world needs redeeming. And here's the wild thing about the world's redemption. He expects you to partner with him to do it. Some of us need to be like Josiah. Remember Josiah? He had a little bit of a desperate situation too. He was eight years old and made king. Not only that, his father, who had turned away from God, was assassinated. So he walks in to being king over Israel as an eight-year-old after a father had been assassinated and after Israel had broken covenant with God and they had literally broken their relationship with God so much that they were so far away from God. But yet Josiah trusted that even though the world was not as it should be, his God was working. And some of us need to hear that this morning, that even though I might not see it, God is still in control. Even though I might not feel it, God is still working. Even though I might not see it in my everyday scenes, my God is at work right now. And Josiah, in the middle of this desperate situation where Israel is so far away from God, you know what he decided to do? Trust that God is alive, that God is here, that God is working. And that's beautiful because in Israel's situation, he chose faith. And God looks at this eight-year-old who grows up into this man of God, and God says about Josiah, he had the faith and heart of his father, David. Josiah wasn't dependent on his culture not following God. He chose to follow God. 
Israel had broke the covenant, but Josiah had chose faith. And in that desperate situation, God says, I will bless your faith, not because of the world out there, but because of the heart you have. Not because of all that's broken, but because you want to fix it. And years later, remember Josiah for bringing reform to Israel, for bringing Israel back to God. But you know how he did it? He did it through one of my favorite people in all of scripture, a lady by the name of Huldah. Huldah is one of the greatest people in all of scripture to me. And she only gets nine verses, right? But here's the thing about Huldah. Huldah is one of those first people that made me realize that God has a sense of humor. And, and the Bible is, you know, I grew up like in the, the, the denomination I grew up in, everything was a code, right? Like it's just like you just read and you figured out the code, right? So it was really hard as a kid because I didn't get the code. And I didn't figure it out. But every now and then I would read stuff that no one else would see. And I'm like, oh, God's funny. And I'd hold on to that. So Hulda is a prophet, which is an amazing thing to say. She's an Old Testament woman who's counted as a prophet of God. But here's the fun part about Hulda. Her husband was a fashion designer. God's not really into gender roles, right? God's not really, we are. You know, we're like, well, obviously if it's a prophet, it's got to be the man, the woman can design the code. God's like, no, no, no. And here's the best part about the story. Her husband's job has nothing to do with the story. But God just felt the need to throw it in there. Huldah was the prophet of God and her husband designed clothes. He sewed all the time. He was really good designing them clothes. But what I love most about Huldah is that she trusted God's restoration. Because here's the thing. Israel was lost. Israel had fallen away from God. Israel had broke the contract, the covenant with God. And I say, if you want to understand biblical covenant, you know, a, a modern day example is, is what I like to call the mortgage covenant. You know, if you, if you every month, if you pay your mortgage to the house you own, but you're still buying that the bank really owns, you get the blessing of what? Living in your house. But every month or a couple months, if you don't pay the mortgage to the house you own that, that you're already buying, that the bank really owns, what happens? You get the curse of, of, of leaving your house. And that's what happened with Israel. God says, if you're willing to be faithful to me and you're willing to put your life in my hands and to trust me, I will bless you. But if you choose other gods, if you run from me, if you don't choose to follow me and make me the Lord of your life, you will break this relationship with me. And that's the desperate situation that the people are in. And what I love the most is that Huldah, we believe, had contemporaries like Isaiah and Jeremiah. So it wasn't like the guys with, with a lot of books in the Bible, like a lot of chapters. It wasn't like they weren't around. They were around, and they even got like 50-plus chapters. Huldah gets nine verses, right? But of all the people that are around, there's two people, Shaphan, who was a high priest, and, and Hilkiah, who I think was a scholar, right? So you have the high priest— and one of the greatest scholars in Israel at the time, and they find this book in the book of treasures. Remind me of my one grandmom's house where it's like we had this old Bible and you can't touch it. You just got to look at it. And if she catches you looking at it too long, you're in trouble, right? It's kind of what happened to the, to the book of the law, the scripture. They had so ran away from God that they just put it in the treasure trove room and it was all dusted up and they clean it up and they bring it out. They bring it to Josiah and you have the high priest and one of the greatest scholars. And they're like, um, so here's this book. We think, um, but we don't know what to do with it. And Josiah's like, well, can't anyone interpret scripture? And they're like, hold the can. Your husband sews the best suits, but she can talk to God. <laughs> and so they take the book and they, they, they bring it to Holda. And what I love about God in this 
is that I keep trying, I keep seeing this in scripture where God seems to always want to remind us like, I see you, I see your faith, I see you even when the world doesn't see you. And what's beautiful is Israel had already broken the covenant with God. But when Holda gets the message and she interprets it, she looks at Josiah and God speaks through her and says, Josiah, God sees you. He sees your faith. He sees that you have the faith of your father, David. So yes, we've broken this covenant. We've broken this relationship. We will lose the land. But God sees you and he's going to honor you. And it's not going to happen in your lifetime. If you're going to get bad news, that's the best way to get it. Right? It's just like, I know you're king now and we're going to lose. We're going to get kicked out the land. But it's not going to happen on your watch because God loves you. But Holda interprets. But here's why I think we need to learn from Holda. You know, there was four gates in the temple. Four gates that people walked through. And there's some of us who believe that when Jesus walked through to the temple, guess whose gates he chose to walk through? He walked through Holda's gates. And the beautiful thing about that is simply this. I think God wants us to be more like Holda. A lot of us think our faith is about being out there and yelling and screaming. I think God wants us to be like Holda, where we're so in tune with him and we're so living for him that when the world needs help, it says, you know what? I need to find my Holda. I need to find a Christian to tell me who God is. If I need to know that God loves me and what God's love feels like, I need to find you. That's how we need to be like Holda this morning. She's a prophet who people know about her faith. And because of how faithful she was to God, people came running to help them learn what God had to say. But here's the beautiful thing about God's righteousness. It's not just that God's good. He's very good. He's excellent. It's not just seen in what God has done. It's not just seen in what God is doing. It's not just seen in what God will do. God's righteous. He redeems, he reconciles, he restores. But here's the best, most exciting part. God wants you to participate in his righteousness. You're not called to just sit there and watch the show unfold. God thinks you have a part to play and he's waiting for you to come join him. Because you see, God, with his righteousness, it's not just something he gifts is something he expects you to do. Ephraim Smith also says, yes, righteousness in the Hebrew is about justice and virtue, but righteousness is about the character and integrity of God showing up in our lives. God wants you to be righteous as he is righteous. But here's the thing, and we have to give a little warning because we're Westerners, we're American. And you know what we like in America? Individuals. But here's the weird thing about God. He cares about all of us. We sing or we say God so loved the world and we somehow have, it's, it's one of the most beautiful things I think, right? It just shows you about our culture. For God so loved the world. Yet most of us, when we say that, we interpret it as a God so loves me. And it's, it's fascinating to me. We, we know the world, world, but that's what we interpret it as. Because we're such these individuals. And here's why it matters with righteousness. Because when God speaks about his righteousness and the righteousness of his people, he's not talking about individuals. In fact, whenever the Bible talks about an individual having self-righteousness, it's not a good thing. Here's another snippet about Jesus' sense of humor. You know, he looked at the Pharisees and he goes, this is a story about those people who think they're very important and righteous. There once was a man who was a Pharisee. He was a Christian. He looked like a Christian. He looked like he was following God. He looked like he knew all the rules. And he just looked like he was righteous. He walks into the temple and, and he says, you know, God, I'm just so grateful that I'm good. I'm just so grateful that I'm awesome. 
I mean, I'm so awesome. I follow everything you do and I give my tithe, which everyone who's ever worked in ministry is like, oh, that guy's good. Yeah, we'll take that, right? But Jesus contrasts him, right? He contrasts him with someone else. The, the, the person who comes before God and says, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And then Jesus says, those of you who think you're righteous and important, I guarantee you the one who says, God, forgive me, I'm a sinner, is way more righteous than the one who's self-righteous. So when we talk about God's righteousness, it's not about you being individually good. That's nice. But God cares about us. It's about the work that we have to do together. So it's not about your individual goodness. So it's not about, God, I'm not good enough. I can't do this. God's like, well, that's cute. I care about us. How are we going to work together? Because God's righteousness is what the Old Testament book called Sedekah. And Sedekah was rescuing and releasing the oppressed. That's what God meant by righteousness. So it's not about you being good. It's about, are you really willing and ready to partner with me? to release and rescue people who are oppressed? Are you ready to partner with me to do the work of redemption? Are you willing to partner with me to do the work of reconciliation? Are you willing to partner with me to do the work of, of restoration? Are you willing to partner with me? Because here's the truth. Your world is broken. I need you to help fix it. Your world is dark. I need you to shine your light. Your world needs me, but I have you and the spirit. Let's go. Are you willing to partner with me? So that's why when God says righteousness, he's not just talking about you being good. He's saying, are you ready and willing to partner with me to bring healing to your world, to bring love to your world, to bring Jesus to your world? Because God's righteousness restores the powerless. And here's what I love the most about our God. He's not just interested in releasing and rescuing the oppressed. He wants his children to come home. He wants them to come home. And that means God doesn't just want you to walk up to your sister and help her up. God wants you to help her run to him. And not only run to him, God wants you to help her learn about him and, and learn that she can share her story, that she has a place to, in the kingdom because her sharing her story is going to help some other brother get picked up and run to God. God isn't just interested in rescuing and redeeming. God wants to restore because all his children can come home again. And the only way all his children can come home again is for all of us to do the work of righteousness. And righteousness means rescuing the oppressed. So the question this morning becomes, is God's righteousness to you, how am I being good? Or how am I doing God's good work? How are you rescuing people who are oppressed in your life? How are you redeeming those who need the, the, the light this morning because their life is, is characterized by darkness? Well, I think there's several ways we can do this. The first is we have to just simply trust who God is. Trust that God is righteous. Because here's the thing. Remember when we were, when we were walking with David, we said, the question that God seems to always be asking is, do you trust me? Do you trust me now? Do you trust me still? And guess what's going to happen tomorrow? Do you trust me? Do you trust me now? Do you trust me still? And guess what's going to happen a week from now? Do you trust me? Do you trust me now? Do you trust me still? And what's going to happen seven years from now or, 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 or 20 years from now or 50 years from now? Do you trust me? Do you trust me now? Do you trust me still? The first way to, to live and work for God's righteousness is simply to trust God. And here's the thing. It's an everyday thing. 
You don't get to say, I trust God and my account is full. I'm good because life's going to happen. So every morning you need to make a pledge to God and say, I trust you and I trust you alone. I rely on you and I rely on you alone because life is going to ask you, do you trust God? Do you trust God? Do you trust him now? Do you trust him still? And your answer has to forever be, yes, I do. The second way we can do this is trust what God has done. Are you willing this morning to trust God's resume? And I'm not just talking about what he did in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'm talking about what he's done in your life. Now, I always tell you it's good to write stuff down because life's going to happen. And three years from now, you might find that old journal. You might be like the people on Josiah's Day and dust it off, you know, and open it and be like, oh, God is good. Praise the Lord for being good. But we have to trust God's resume. And it's good to trust what he's done in the Bible, but also trust what he's done in your life. Because here's the thing. Every single day, God wants you to take a baby step closer to him. And if you have seven good days in a row and you have a little hiccup and take a step backwards, you can still stop and say, you know what? I'm still four steps ahead. Praise God how far I've come. Trust God's resume. The last one, last two things is you got to trust what God is doing in this world. Because this world is easy to beat you down. This world is easy to let you think darkness is winning. But that's why God has these little snippets where he tells us, you know, sorrow lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. It's where God reminds us that that, that, that the true light is already shining in this darkness. Trust that God is alive, that God is working, that God is here. Because Satan doesn't want you to believe that. If you believe everything's broken and nothing being fixed and nothing, there's no hope in everything, You've already lost. Satan's already won. Because here's the joy of the Lord. We all got a price, not just a price that Jesus paid, but we all got a place and work to do. And if you're not doing the work that God's called you to do, Satan's won. And the way Satan wins is simply by convincing you everything is terrible. Nothing can be fixed. You have nothing that you can do to change it. It's so big. But remember our African brothers and sisters who tell us what? Eat the elephant but take it one bite at a time and enjoy it. Lastly, trust what God will do in you. We have a God who doesn't just redeem, restore, and reconcile. We are a God who says, I will finish the work I've done and begun in you. We're not there yet, and that's okay. We're not perfectly there yet, but God is the perfecter. God is the one who lives in you. God is the one who's working on you. And you can dig that same thing and take it to our world and say, instead of me just complaining about brokenness, let me see how and what God is doing. How can I jump in? Trust what God will do. And you know, how do you keep these trust in God? There's two things that Jesus tells us. The first one is this, seek God with all your heart. Because all of us are going to have idols Good things sometimes, bad things. We're going to have idols that we follow closer than Jesus if we're honest. We're prone to wander. Some of us feel it, but the hard part is some of us might not feel it. But God reminds us that even when you ran away from me and chasing the things that don't matter, but even from there, if you seek the Lord your God, you will find him. And if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul, the Proverbs, Jesus said, God says to us, I love those who love me and those who seek me find me. Jeremiah 29, which is this great chapter that I think is good for all of us, right? We love 29 11 because it's like, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper. But here's the thing. God's writing to a people in exile. 
He's writing to a people who've lost the promised land. He's writing to a people who are not where they should be. They're in a world not as it should be. So God hasn't just given you a good graduation verse. God is saying, when the world's not as it should be, this is how you shine for me here. When the world is all broken around you, this is how you glorify me. And in 29, 13, after he says all that, he says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. See God with all your heart. In a Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says it like this. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And then probably one of my favorite chapters in all of scripture is Paul in Acts 17. He's in Thessalonica. He's in Berea. He's going to the synagogues. He's debating all these people, telling them about Jesus. And their natural reaction is like, we should kill him or at least kick him out of town. So he snuck out of town twice and finally ends up in Athens. And, he, and he's walking around the marketplace and he sees this world that's not as it should be. He sees this world with all these idols. He sees this world where people think they're more progressive and they're smart and they know everything. But instead of being intimidated, Paul invites us to be like Jesus. He goes and he walks around. He learns that world. He learns their language. He learns where they were. He didn't complain about how far away from God they were. He learns where they were. And he does something that all of us can do and say, God, that's where they are. Help me to find a way in. And this is the way in for Paul High. He talked about a God and what God has done. He talked about a God and what God is doing. He talked about God and what God will do. He talks about God's righteousness and he says it like this. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands and if, if, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did so so that they would seek him, sound familiar, and perhaps reach out for him and find him, sound familiar, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offering. Even this world that you think is far from Jesus can't outrun Jesus. And no matter how far they are away, if you ask God, where can I see you and bridge the gap? God will help you. See God with all your heart. And then lastly, don't worry, but instead seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Trust who God is. Trust what God has done. Trust what God is doing. Trust what God will do. But seek God with all your heart and seek and work for his